It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. And it's going to be a great hour today. We're going to hear the legend of Osiris, told for you by Dan Marcotte. And you're going to hear from the great South Carolina storyteller, Tim Lowry, with a story called The Monkey and the Buzzard. You'll even hear a little cowboy poetry from Joe Harrington. He'll bring us a piece called Branded. And you'll hear an entry in the Radio Family Journal about an old piece of music that I came to love when I was a kid. And I'll have a conversation with Ian Puente about the terrific serialized podcast, The Unexplainable Disappearance of Mars Patel. You won't want to miss a word. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Kendra Hanna. Kendra, it's great to have you with me. Pleasure to be here. We're going to hear a Laura Pershing Rayner story, aren't we? Tell us a little bit about Fanny in Miami. Yeah, for sure. So this is a story from Laura's life, actually. It's her remembering her grandma uh, returning from Miami from a little adventure she had there and coming back with this new vigor for life that she carries with her um, onward and into the future. And it's just a really great story about, about doing all those things that you've always wanted to do. Fanny in Miami is the name of the story, a family tale told by Laura Pershing Rayner, and we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. The first time my grandma Fanny returned from Miami Beach, she brought me a baby alligator. It was dead, stuffed, with dark brown leathery skin, small black beady eyes, and a wide grin with perfectly pointed teeth. I put it on top of the dresser in my bedroom, but every night before I went to sleep, I covered it with a pillowcase so it couldn't watch me while I slept. My grandma Fanny said that Miami Beach was a strange and magical place. Her two best friends, who had moved down there to live all year round, Pearl and Goldie, had actually learned how to drive. Pearl drove a car that was as big as a boat, and no matter where she was, she always drove 20 miles an hour. The brightly colored sports cars would zip by them, and if a smarty pants had the nerve to honk, Goldie would yell, Yiddish curses out the window. You should stick your head in the ground and grow like an onion. And if some youngster had the chutzpah to raise a certain finger in their direction, Pearl would yell out her favorite one. May you inherit a hotel with a hundred rooms and be found dead in each and every one. Grandma Fanny announced to the family that she too wanted to learn how to drive. Now, my grandpa Julius was a patient man. He'd been schlepping his wife back and forth to the hairdresser for 40 years by then. If she wanted to learn how to drive, he would be the one to teach her. So one early Sunday morning, they climbed into Julius's 1957 Dodge station wagon with the wood panel down the sides, drove to the factory parking lot, and spent three hours on Fanny's first driving lesson. When they came home that afternoon, Grandpa Julius took three aspirin and went to bed for the rest of the day. A couple of weeks later, it was a cool morning in early spring, 
My sister Lisa and I were fast asleep in our beds when we were awakened by the sound of a car horn blasting. We sleepily crawled out of bed, went over to the window, lifted up the shade, and there, in the middle of the boulevard that ran down Corning Avenue, was Grandpa Julius's 1957 Dodge station wagon trying to climb a tree. We could see a little silver head behind the steering wheel, and we could hear Grandma Fanny's voice, Get me out of this Meshuggah car! That was the last time Grandma Fanny drove a car, but it wasn't the last time she brought home something strange from Miami Beach. For my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, their children, my mom and her siblings, decided to surprise them with tickets to Miami Beach. My grandma was so excited, she said, I can't wear my old bathing suit. It's such a schmata. It looks like an old grocery sack. Now, it was a four-woman job taking my grandmother to find a new bathing suit. On the coldest day of the winter, we drove down Woodward Ave, my mother and sister and grandmother and I, until we came to Grandma's favorite shop. When we walked in, the windows were a little bit steamy and the place smelled of lavender and roses from the perfumes of all the little ladies who were shopping for bathing suits for Miami Beach. Now, my mom and sister were the best shoppers, so they went to the racks to look for different shapes and sizes, while I went with Grandma Fanny into the dressing room and began to undo every one of the little hooks on Grandma Fanny's corset. It seemed like there were a hundred hooks. When the garment fell from her body, Grandma Fanny let out such a sigh of relief and began to try on bathing suits. My mother and sister and I sat on the floor outside the dressing room and watched the parade of colors. The first one Grandma Fanny tried on was a bright yellow with four inches of fringe dangling from the bottom. She came out laughing. She said, I look like Fanny the Flapper and started to do the Charleston for us in front of the dressing room. The second suit was a bright fire engine red with a matching bathing cap that had big petals dangling all around. She came out and said, I look just like Bozo the Clown. For the next hour, we watched Grandma Fanny trying on suits until she ended up with an elegant navy blue number with little white sailboats floating across her ample bosom. To celebrate, Fanny treated us to hot fudge cream puffs at Sanders Ice Cream Dairy, even though it was 10 degrees below zero. That winter, Fanny and Julia sent a letter home from Miami Beach to thank the family for the wonderful gift. My mother was at the kitchen table when she opened up the letter and a photograph slipped out, and my mother started to cry. I looked over her shoulder at the photograph, and it was a picture of Fanny and Julius frolicking in the surf of the Atlantic Ocean, splashing each other. I said, Mom, why are you crying? She said, I, it's silly, I know. It's just that I've never seen my parents wet before, and they actually look like they're having fun together. When Grandma Fanny and Grandpa Julius returned that winter, the whole family gathered at the airport to welcome them home. They walked off the plane looking tanned and relaxed, and Grandpa Julius was carrying a mysterious little box with a cloth covering it. 
He set the box down on the floor to give everybody in the family a big hug. When my little sister Lisa went running over and she lifted up the cloth to peek in the box and yip, she jumped back. She said, what is it? And Grandma Fanny bent down and lifted off the cloth with a flourish and said, she's a French poodle and her name is Gigi. Isn't she beautiful? The family gathered around and looked down at a puff of fur that was no bigger than a football. Gigi was dyed the color of the apricots that my mother kept in a crystal bowl on the kitchen counter. She had a thick collar made of rhinestones. And as the family looked down at this little orange alien with the skinny pointed snout and the big black eyes, we couldn't know that within the year, Grandpa Julius would become so ill that Grandma Fanny would spend all of her time taking care of him. And the little Miami dog that had grown up eating chopped liver off of paper doilies in hotels would come to live with us. It was my job to walk Gigi every day after school. We were like a little rhythm band, the two of us. Gigi's tiny claws going on the pavement, my bell-bottom blue jeans slapping together, whoosh, whoosh, ch-ch-ch-ch, whoosh, whoosh, when we'd pass by the enormous St. Bernard named Henry, who lived across the street, Gigi would snarl, and she'd look just like that dead baby alligator on top of my bedroom dresser. I tried to hide it, but my friends knew, and they teased me. I grew to love that little Miami Beach dog. When my grandpa died, I went to my grandmother after the funeral and I took her hand and I said, are you going to be okay? And she sighed and she said, remember that time you got lost in the new Sears and Roebuck store? That store was so big and you were only five years old and your mother and I were running all over. We were so worried. When we found you a few minutes later, you looked pretty scared, but you weren't crying. And that surprised us then, but now I understand why. You were just too alone to cry. For 10 years, my grandma Fanny was a widow. She took care of us and we took care of her. But one winter, her children decided to surprise her one more time just to cheer her up, to send her back to her favorite place, Miami Beach. She visited with her friends, Pearl and Goldie, who were still living down there. And this time, when my grandma Fanny came back, she had a man. His name was Morris Golden. He was tall and skinny and completely bald. He had no family of his own, so we quickly adopted him. We were amazed to see Grandma Fanny flirting for the first time in her life. When Fanny and Morris were married, my father was so excited, he wore a bright red bow tie with matching red high-top sneakers to the wedding. They had three sweet years together, Fanny and Morris. Morris loved Fanny's parakeet, Billy Boy, and would walk around the apartment building with Billy Boy perched on his shoulder. 
On Sunday mornings, they take a cab to Empire Deli for fried salami and scrambled eggs and an onion bagel lightly toasted. And when Morris died, Grandma Fanny cried. But one more surprise came from Miami Beach. It was a check from Morris's bank. And that winter, Grandma Fanny lined all of her grandchildren up in front of her as she sat like a queen in her overstuffed chair. And she passed out $1,000 checks to every grandchild. And when each one of us bent down to kiss her soft cheek and thank her for the gift, she whispered in our ears, Remember, this is just a little gift from Morris. And it came all the way from Miami Beach. Fanny in Miami, a story told by Laura Pershin Rayner about her grandmother visiting again and again to a magical place, right? It's a, it's a story about magic, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> I, I really like this story because it's just about Grandma Fanny living her dreams and, and doing what she wants, even though... Even though she might be old, the time is now. Yeah. <laughs> if we don't have today, what do we have? Yeah, and, and the story contains all of these surprises, right? I mean, the story will – whatever whenever Fanny goes to Miami Beach, what comes back is sometimes not what was expected from Fanny, right? Exactly. And, and, we, and we get to see in a story like that – Sort of the turns that a life can take, even when even when you think that a life has sort of become settled, you know, there are still all kinds of surprises in it, right? And everybody in the story gets to sort of adjust and adapt to those the the, the way things are now. Yeah, and there's and there's still magic in everyday life. <laughs> That's right. Well, maybe you have a magical place. I, you know, as I listened to that story, I thought about an era of my life when my father would sometimes go on work trips, you know, and come home with little surprises tucked in his suitcase, and uh, and there was all kinds of there was all kinds of magic for us in that, of course. Well, what a pleasure to listen to Fanny in Miami by Laura Persian Rayner. A pleasure to listen to it with you and also with Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers. Kendra, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard Fanny in Miami, a story told by Laura Pershin Rayner. And there are ancient tales and modern tales both coming up from Dan Marcotte, who will tell us the legend of Osiris, from Tim Lowry, who will give us the old tale of the monkey and the buzzard, and a cowboy poetry piece from Joe Harrington called Branded. You won't want to miss any of it, but first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love, here's a memory of mine of an old piece of music that I came to love as a little kid. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. You've had the same experience, I'm sure. 
You're driving along in the car, and suddenly into your mind comes something you haven't thought about in years. Some little memory of something your mom used to say, or the theme song of a TV show you loved as a kid, or the memory of that time your dad took you for fish and chips on the pier. Just some little memory, vivid and unexpected. When it happened to me the other day, I was driving along, and into my mind came a tiny little snatch of an opera, just a little melody and a few words. I found myself singing, When at night I go to sleep, Fourteen angels watch do keep. Well, I don't know what cued that memory. At first, I could hardly remember how I knew that little tune at all. And then, as happens sometimes with these tiny little thoughts, the memory started to grow, the pictures and sounds in my head filling themselves in, adding more and more information as the seconds pass. The little passage is from an opera version of the story of Hansel and Gretel, written by Engelbert Humperdinck in the 1890s. And that little snatch about the angels is sung by Hansel and Gretel alone in the woods, having lost their way with a cruel stepmother behind them in the story and an evil witch yet to come. And they're saying their evening prayers before they go to sleep. When at night I go to sleep, fourteen angels watch do keep. Two my head are guarding, two my feet are guiding, two are on my right hand, two are on my left hand, two who warmly cover, two who o'er me hover, two to whom is given to guide my steps to heaven. Well, the memory, as it turns out, comes to me from third grade. My mom, a violin player with a record cabinet full of LPs of classical music, has bundled me up on a winter's night, saved up for a couple of tickets to take her son to see, get this, not just one, but two operas on one night, an opera double-header. On the bill are Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel and Giancarlo Menotti's Amal and the Night Visitors, an opera written in the 1950s for television, an opera about the three kings in search of the Christ child. And in this opera, they spend the night in the hut of a poor woman and her crippled son. And, well, it's a Christmas miracle story. Dang, we're going to go see two whole flipping operas, and we're going to miss the Dukes of Hazard on TV to do it. Well, I love my mom, and I gamely come along, and I sit through both of those dang operas on a hard wooden bench, and it's fine. I live right through it, and I ask my friends at school the next day about the Dukes of Hazard, and they catch me up, so no harm, no foul, right? Now, it might be nice if this were a story about how my mom took me to an opera and it changed my life, about how exposed to that evening of Humperdinck and Menotti, I was suddenly and irrevocably attuned to the world's great classical music. But it's not that kind of story. I mean, I went home and listened to Pink Floyd and Blondie and Casey and the Sunshine Band and Billy Joel, same stuff I'd listened to the night before my night of opera. As a teenager, I would do my fair share of calling up the local DJ to request songs by Howard Jones or Depeche Mode, 
and I'll even load up my dad's big PA speakers into the car to DJ the local church dance with my library of pirated cassette tapes of Tears for Fears and Lionel Richie and Wang Chung. I mean, I was really, really a normal kid. And I don't know what my mom expected would happen that night. But I'll tell you what did happen. Not much on the night itself, but as a grown-up, years later, decades later, pieces of music to which my mother introduced me come gently into my head. They comfort me, and they make me happy. They fill me with the grandest and best feelings I have. My head gets as filled up with troubles and trials that this world has to offer as anyone else's, and I'm so, so glad that those pieces of music are in there, too. As good as the best food, healing as the most precious balm. Well, my mom lives almost 700 miles away from me in the mountains of California. Her eyesight is going, her memory is going, but in the corner of her sitting room, perpetually and forever, there is a music stand and a violin beneath it, and sitting on the music stand are sheets of music, some of it the same music to which my mother introduced me as a kid. And when I visit her, sometimes when she's being brave, she plays. And sometimes when I'm being brave, I sing. When at night I go to sleep, Fourteen angels watch do keep To my head are guarding to my feet are guiding, two are on my right hand, two are on my left hand, two who warmly cover, two who o'er me hover, two to whom is given to guide my steps to heaven. Thanks, Mom. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. There's a lot coming up, but first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, through terrific songs, the things we see on screen, and of course, from radio and podcasts, too. And exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love here on The Appleseed. I'm joined in the studio by Ian Puente, Director of Strategy here at BYU Broadcasting. And it is not too bold. A lot of you have listened to Treasure Island 2020. We've been thrilled to bring that to you here on The Appleseed. And it's not too bold to say that one of the very first brushstrokes getting Treasure Island 2020 on the canvas was Ian Puente saying, we got to have something like Treasure Island 2020 on the canvas. <laughs> and, and, that, and that comes from kind of a, a really rich experience uh, in Ian's life with podcasts. He comes from a family of podcast listeners. That's one of the things that they do together. Ian Puente, it's great to have you here on the Appleseed. 
Thanks for having me. I don't know what the what the kind of the door into the world of serialized adventure podcasts was for you, but I know what kind of the first one that we began to talk about together was, and and that was the the podcast created by Gen Z Media, who wound up being our partners on Treasure Island Twenty Twenty. Exactly. Yep. Uh, the unexplainable disappearance of Mars Patel. Isn't that a great title? It's it just great. grabs you right away, doesn't I it? I know. Yeah. <laughs> Half the battle is over right there with the title. Yeah. Well, you know, I've uh, got uh, two 13-year-old twin boys yeah. and two 11-year-old twin boys. So yeah. I've got four boys that are basically two years apart from each other. So they're all developmentally pretty close. Yeah. When I took the job at BYU, we were living at Connecticut. So hmm. we had an epic road trip that we were going to take. And, yeah. you know, I didn't really want it to be a, an experience where everybody was just on their own screen. I wanted to try to have some communal experience yeah. in addition to the road trip piece altogether. So I did some digging and this one came across the the board for me. It had, yeah. was a Peabody Award winner. I was like, oh, that's interesting. It was, it was pretty much my first blush at the youth kind of podcast space. Yeah. Which is so yeah. richly populated. I mean, we, Absolutely. we we discover every day how richly populated it is, right? Sure. And it gets richer every day. Yeah. And what's exciting is now we're contributing to yeah. that to that as well, which is I just I'm thrilled about it. It's really fun <laughs> to be in the space. Mars Patel, just to give a little bit of background on it, is is essentially the story of a middle schooler named Mars Patel. Doesn't know his father, living with a single parent, trying to, you know, trying to do what all middle schoolers are, which is trying to figure yeah. out what's going on in, you know, where he fits in the world and what his life's going to be. It's a kind of a coming of age story in a lot of ways. Um, and one of his best friends, in fact, sort of a romantic interest goes missing yeah. and no one seems to care except for Mars. And so he goes about trying to crack the mystery of her disappearance and uh, ends up on a pretty epic um pretty epic quest it's it's almost one of those situations where epic seems too small a word it is yes <laughs> well what's so fun about it too is that that radio space it's like it's the same price to make a story of a one one room procedural versus you know traveling throughout the cosmos that's right, right. yeah it's just about great sound effects and and really just fantastic uh acting talent and of course, one of the things that one one of the aspects of the story is that there's kind, there's this kind of mysterious sort of shadow corporation. You don't know if it's good or bad. You know, there's a there's you mostly a, think it's bad. Yeah, I think, <laughs> along the way. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of mystery. It's a real it's a really nice mystery as well. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's it's got a great mystery. I yeah. mean, certainly those who watch it and have or listen to it, I should say and have experience with a lot of different kind of pop culture things, we'll see a huge amount of referencing to the, to those things. Yeah. Including a Star Wars tribute in terms of father-son <laughs> relationships, right. I have to say. And uh, yet it, it it ends up being something pretty unique and pretty, yeah. pretty interesting. And I think what's really fascinating about it was just how it it really reopened the doors for that kind of storytelling yeah. for for kids and for parents like for to to do to take part in together and here you are on a drive from Connecticut to Utah via Canada via, also. Yeah, via we, Canada. We, we just made it longer but <laughs> yes and you you roll the dice and say well maybe here's something we can do together yeah. as we drive and and how did everybody take to it kids were immediately grabbed by it huh. as was I 
Now, admittedly, I was probably a little more critical than the children were, obviously. I was like, yeah. oh, well, that's from this and that's from this. And <laughs> and uh, and yet it was really, really well done and really enjoyable yeah. and a great, you know, after we finished through, I think at the time, the first two seasons were available. Yeah. We just started it over again and, hmm. and kind of went through it. But what was really fun about it was just sitting and talking about it. Like, what do you think is going to happen next? Yeah. And, you know, what do you think about this mystery that they set up? And yeah, I was really, it was, I was really pleased that often the, the kids kind of were able to sort of say, I think this is where this is going. And, <laughs> and I think for them, it was awfully validating as well to, yeah. to be able to pinpoint some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And get some wrong, you know, you get some oh, right, for you sure. get some wrong, but yep. every, every, every one of them is an opportunity for yep. the kind of conversation that you're sometimes kind of reaching for with your yep. kids. Right. Yeah. Well, Mars Patel, the unexplainable disappearance of Mars Patel is just one of the many fine adventure podcasts produced by Gen Z Media. And again, they wound up being uh, our partners on Treasure Island 2020, which is the unfolding adventure, the time-traveling, swashbuckling adventure unfolding each week uh, on BYU Radio and on the Appleseed. You can find it, of course, online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. But to explore that space a little bit, more and to and and to find a little bit more about Mars Patel and some of some of the podcasts that accompany it produced by our friends at Gen Z Media you can visit bestrobotever.com that's the website there the nice thing about so many of these podcasts is they're just free. You they know, have a ton know. of fun stuff yeah. there now at this point. Six Minutes, Young Ben Franklin. There's yeah. a ton there to listen to. Yeah. Well, if like Ian and like Ian's kids, you're looking to find ways to fill up a lot of time with, with stuff that's <laughs> worth talking about, that's a great way to do it. I'm Sam Payne. What a pleasure to have Ian Puente with us. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. A pleasure to chat with Ian Puente, and we'll be sure to have him back. Lots more coming up. Stick around for Dan Marcotte and the Legend of Osiris up next on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Up next, Dan Mercat with an ancient Egyptian tale about how the god Osiris teaches the humans how to prosper. But when the brother of Osiris, Set, the evil god of chaos and storms, wants to overthrow Osiris, how will Osiris and his wife Isis protect Egypt? Find out in The Legend of Osiris, an ancient tale told for you by Dan Mercat here on The Appleseed. Osiris, born of sky and earth, Geben Newt, his parents grand, raised and taught by the ibis-headed Thoth. Behold his sacred legend, Osiris. Before the coming of Osiris, the people of Egypt were in turmoil. They were starving because they did not know how to farm and cultivate crops and wine. They were fighting one another constantly, for they had no rules of peace and prosperity. And they were always getting punished by the gods, for they did not know how to worship them properly. But with the coming of Osiris, all of that changed. Osiris taught the people to farm and cultivate crops and wine so they would never go hungry. 
He taught them rules of peace and prosperity so they wouldn't have to fight each other all of the time. And he taught them how to worship the gods and receive their blessings instead of their wrath. Along with his wife and queen, Isis, Osiris ruled over a prosperous and happy Egypt. But then there was Set. Set was Osiris's evil little brother. He was the lord over all evil things of the desert, including sandstorms, scorpions, and evil spirits. We do not know much about the appearance of Set, but we know that he had a pair of forked ears and a long snout which made him talk like this. Alone amidst the minions of the desert, he plotted the demise of his big brother Osiris. Well, Osiris, you've done very well for yourself, but you've forgotten to teach these mortals the most important lesson of all, and that is that we are gods, and they should be little more than slaves to us. But try as he might, Set was never able to overthrow Osiris because his wife and queen Isis had powerful magics which protected him. One day, Osiris decided to go on a journey. He would bring his teachings of agriculture, law, and worship to people beyond the lands of Egypt. He kissed his wife and queen Isis goodbye, and he went on his journey. Set began to plot. He assembled a group of evil and greedy men, and they built a chest of ivory and ebony inlaid with silver. It was the exact height, width, and depth of Osiris himself. When Osiris finally returned, he found that his brother, Set, had thrown for him a great party. There was singing and feasting and dancing. Perhaps, Osiris thought, his brother was not so bad after all. At the end of the party, Set brought forth the mighty chest. Behold, people of Egypt, I have made for you a present. Whoever can climb into this beautiful chest and fit into it just right will get to take it home as a present. Well, the people of the party were very excited, and one by one they climbed in, but no one fit into it just right. Some were too tall, some were too short, some too wide, some too thin. Eventually, Osiris was the only one left. He climbed into the chest, and Set leaned over him and smiled a wicked grin. Well, Osiris, it seems to fit you perfectly. What a coincidence! Congratulations, the chest is now yours! And with that, he slammed shut the lid of the chest. He nailed iron spikes into the lid and sealed the cracks with molten lead. He hoisted the chest over his head. He carried it through the streets of the city and hurled it into the Nile River. Behold, people of Egypt, I set am your pharaoh now. Obey me and I may let you live. Disobey me and you will face the wrath of my sandstorms, my scorpions, and my evil Spirits. Isis just watched her husband get sealed into a chest and hurled into the river. Fearing for her life, she changed into a bird and escaped through a window. She soared down the Nile River in search of her husband, and after many adventures, she found Osiris and his coffin. She brought the coffin back to the city walls 
and buried it beneath the weeds and the reeds and the mud, and she went off to prepare powerful magics to bring her husband back to life. During this time, she bore a son, a young falcon-headed boy named Horus, who would one day avenge his father. While Isis was preparing her powerful magics, Set happened to be hunting wild boar outside the city walls. As he stalked through the marshes, he stepped on something hard. He pulled apart the weeds and the reeds and the mud, and there was Osiris's coffin. Enraged that his brother was still here, he ripped open the lid, grabbed his brother's body, tore it into fourteen pieces, and scattered them for miles across Egypt. Satisfied that his brother was no more, he went back to hunting wild boar. Isis, upon her returning, discovered that now her husband had been torn into fourteen pieces and scattered across the lengths of Egypt. She journeyed far and wide, gathering the pieces of her husband. She brought them together and she wept over them. And as her tears fell, she sang, Beloved husband Osiris, my love, Egypt weeps and mourns for you. Were it not for the treacherous set, Egypt's light would still shine in you. Hold not my hand, for you are now gone. Kiss not my lips, for I am alone. Hear not these words I sing in this song. Osiris, my love, Osiris, my love, Osiris, my love, you are gone. As her tears fell upon the severed parts of her husband's body, a silvery mist formed before her. From the magical fog stepped Anubis, the jackal-headed god of the afterlife. Behold, Isis, your tragedy is great, but heed my words, and you shall comfort a million souls. Take your husband's body, put him back together, and wrap him in linen wrappings, and breathe life into him. Isis did as she was told. She sort of put her husband back together and wrapped him in linen wrappings. And thus, the very first mummy was created. She used all of her magic to breathe life back into her husband, but it was only enough to bring him halfway back to life. Osiris awoke, dazed and confused. Before him was his wife and queen, Isis, holding a young falcon-headed boy, and beside her, Anubis, the jackal-headed god of the afterlife. Behold, Osiris, your tragedy has been great indeed. But the gods have deemed you a wise and just ruler. Do not fear. Your young son Horus here will one day avenge you. But in the meantime, the gods have deemed that you are a wise and just ruler and you shall now be ruler of Duat, land of the dead. For as much as the living need you, the dead in their eternal torment need you more. All hail Osiris, ruler of Duat, land of the dead. Osiris.
betrayed and slain by his brother before us, he shall be avenged by his young son Horus. O Cyrus! An ancient Egyptian myth told for you by Dan Mercat, a story of the legend of Osiris. Up next, a story from Tim Lowry. And in this tale, the animals are all suffering because of heat. And the sneaky buzzard offers him a dangerous solution to their problem. And as he tricks animal after animal into becoming his next meal, how will the tricky monkey turn the tables on the old bird? Here's The Monkey and the Buzzard by Tim Lowry, here on The Appleseed. It was hot. How hot was it? It was so hot, you could see those heat waves out on the plane going chunga 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 That's how hot it was. Oh, it was hot. Over on the side of the big plane, there was a tree, old dead tree, no leaves on it. And sitting on a tree limb, there was a little squirrel. He had his tail cocked up over his head, trying to make some shade for himself. <laughs> he was breathing like this, because <laughs> it was that hot. Down in the grass underneath the tree, there was a little rabbit. He had smushed all the grass out of the way and was rolling around in the dirt, taking a dust bath, trying to get cool, and he was breathing like this. <laughs> it was that hot. And way out in the high grass, there was a big old monkey his arms folded across his chest, just looking. Now way up high in the sky, there was a big black buzzard flying around in the clouds. He had long, black, glossy wings, big old pink, bald head. But it was nice and cool up there in the clouds, and he felt just fine. But the buzzard was a little bit hungry. So he sailed down out of the sky and landed on the tree limb next to the squirrel. And the buzzard said, Hey, squirrel, how'd you like to go up in the sky for a nice, cool ride? You climb up on my back, I carry you up in the sky where it's nice and cool, you catch a cool breeze. Oh, I would like that just fine, said the little squirrel. It's so hot down here, you can hardly catch your breath. Let me climb right on. And the little squirrel climbed right up on the buzzard's back. All right, said the buzzard. Hang on, squirrel, get ready for takeoff. He started flapping those big black wings. Kaboom, kaboom, hopping up and down. Soon, they flew right off that tree limb and way up into the sky. They were sailing all around. Little squirrel was hanging onto the buzzard's back. Okay, squirrel, throw your tail out behind you and catch a cool breeze. So little squirrel let his tail fly out behind him. Whoa! Oh, that feels good. Oh, I like this just fine. Oh, this is very nice, very nice. <laughs> All right, squirrel, hang on. Get ready for our landing. And the buzzard started circling around. <laughs> Building up speed. <laughs> Getting faster and faster. <laughs> and then right before he got to the ground, he turned up quick. Little squirrel lost his balance, rolled off the buzzard's back, hit the ground. <gasps> Broke his neck and died. Well, buzzards eat dead stuff, you know. So he ate him. Big, long, fuzzy tail and everything. Ew. Next day, it was hot. Whew, 
How hot was it? It was so hot you could see those heat waves going chunga 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 chunga. That's how hot it was. There was a little rabbit laying in the grass, <laughs> breathing like that because it was so hot. There was the big monkey sitting out in the high grass, his arms folded across his chest, just looking. And way up high in the sky, there was that big old buzzard sailing all around where it was nice and cool. But the buzzard was a little bit hungry. So he sailed down out of the clouds and landed on the ground next to the rabbit. The buzzard said, Hey, rabbit, how'd you like to climb up on my back, go up in the sky for a nice cool ride? Well, I don't know about that, said the little rabbit. I've never been off the ground. I'm a little afraid of heights. I have to think about that. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. Maybe I'll... Oh, come on, rabbit. You climb up on my back. Climb up in the sky. I'll take you for a nice cool ride. Everybody likes it up in the sky. Oh, it sounds really nice. I don't know about that. Oh, come on, rabbit. Don't be a chicken. So finally, the buzzard talked the rabbit into it. The rabbit climbed up on the buzzard's back. Then the buzzard said, Hang on, rabbit. Get ready for takeoff. He started flapping those big black wings, hopping up and down. Soon they flew way up high in the sky. Little rabbit was hanging onto the buzzard's back. He had his eyes closed tight. He was so scared he wouldn't even look. All right, rabbit. Open your eyes and look around. See the sights. So the little rabbit popped his eyes open and said, Oh, this is very pretty. <laughs> and then the rabbit turned to the side and he looked down. Ah! Oh, I want to get down. I want to get down. I want to get down. Okay, rabbit. Hang on. We're coming in for a landing. And the buzzard started circling around. I'm building up speed. Getting faster and faster. And right before he got to the ground, he turned up quick. The rabbit lost his balance, rolled off the buzzard's back, hit the ground. <gasps> broke his neck, and died. Well, buzzards, they eat dead stuff, you know. So he ate him. Big, long, grisly ears and everything. Ooh. Next day, it was hot. Oh, how hot was it? It was so hot, you could see those heat waves going, chunga, 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 chunga. That's how hot it was. Big monkey sitting out in the high grass, arms folded across his chest, just looking. Big black buzzard was sailing all around in the sky where it was nice and cool. He was still a little bit hungry. He zoomed over the tree, but there was no squirrel. He sailed out over the ground, but there was no rabbit. But then the buzzard spied the big monkey sitting in the high grass, and he sailed right down and landed in the high grass next to the monkey and said, Hey, monkey, how'd you like to climb up on my back, go up in the sky for a nice cool ride? Monkey, he wasn't saying nothing. Come on, monkey, you climb up on my back, I'll take you up in the sky where you can catch a cool breeze. Monkey, he didn't say nothing. Come on, monkey, you climb up on my back, you can climb way up high in the sky and see all around. Finally, the monkey, he stood up and he straddled across that old buzzard's back just like a cowboy riding a bucking bronco. He grabbed that old buzzard by the wings and said, Giddy up. So the buzzard knew he was ready. The buzzard said, Hang on, monkey, get ready for takeoff. Started flapping those big black wings. Hopping up and down. Soon they were way up high in the sky. The buzzard was flying all around. You like this, monkey? Why don't you throw your tail out behind you and catch a cool breeze? Monkey, he wasn't saying 
nothing. Come on, monkey, look around, wave to your friends down on the ground. But the monkey, he wasn't saying nothing. Finally, old buzzard got tired of fooling with the monkey. He said, all right, monkey, hang on tight, because we're coming in for our landing. And he started circling around, building up speed, getting faster and faster. But the whole time the buzzard was circling around, the monkey had taken his big, long tail and stretched it out and was wrapping it around that old buzzard's neck. Round and round he'd wrap. Round and round he'd wrap. Round and round he'd wrap. And right before they got to the ground, the buzzard started to turn up and make that monkey fall off his back. The old monkey grabbed his tail, gave it a big jerk, choked that buzzard to death. The old buzzard went sailing right back up in the sky. Then the monkey leaned up and whispered in the buzzard's ear, said, All right, buzzard, I've been watching you. You better straighten up and fly right. If you don't straighten up and fly right, I'm going to use my tail to choke you to death. Now you're going to do everything I say. I want to do a loop-de-loop. the time of his life. Now I want to do a wing over. Boom. Ooh, they flew sideways in a wing over. The monkey was waving everybody down on the ground. <laughs> that old buzzard about to choke to death. His eyes were bugging out of his head. His tongue was lolling out of his beak. Then the monkey leaned up and he said, all right, buzzard, before you choke to death, I'm going to let you loose, but you better let me down soft like a butterfly. So the monkey loosened his grip with his tail, and the buzzard came down to the ground and landed soft like a butterfly. Then the monkey climbed off the buzzard's back. He unwound his tail from round the buzzard's neck, flipped it up over his shoulder, and said, Thank you, buzzard. Thank you for that nice, cool ride. Tim Lowry with The Monkey and the Buzzard from a collection called The Elephant's Child and Other Animal Tales. Tales from all over the place, all about animals. And the last thing we're going to bring you today comes from the cowboy poet Joe Harrington, a longtime friend of the show. And in this poem, Joe relates the story of a young cowboy searching for something beyond the hard work of the range by heading to the city. But what he finds there isn't quite what he expected. Here's Joe Harrington with Branded on the Appleseed. I left the ranch one Saturday night for the call of the neon glow. I had money to spend, good times to have, and a few wild oats to sow. I topped the ridge to the glittering sparkle and the glow of city light, and I got to thinking how grand it'd be to live there every night. Why, I could have a life that's fun and free instead of toil and dreary chores. Why be branded as men like Pa, steady and solid to the core? Oh, he's for sure a man to count on, and he's home most every night, but he seems content without the glow and sparkle of city light. Well, that's not me. I'd stay unbranded. The city's where I'd hang my hat. Why settle down as a steady man when there's lots of time for that? But then I met a drifter in the gutter of an old back street. He looked wretched, lost, and lonely, in need of a friend to meet. So I leaned down with my open hand, and it was then I smelled the wine. He looked up at my old cowboy hat and said, I sure wish I still had mine. 
Against my teenage judgment that was far from being sound, I sat down to talk at night and my life was turned around. Now, who'd have thought that crusty bum, apart from being nice, would have anything to offer, much less some sage advice? He said my cowboy hat stood for something, a life with a special code. Oh, I lived it once when I started out, but now that trail's been rolled. I lost that hat many years ago. I guess I gambled it away for what I thought was a better life, the life of fun and play. See, I, I grew up on rangeland. I trailed steers and baled hay. Oh, I could have been a buckaroo and cowboy every day. But that life was hard and rugged, and I was off to new careers, no city jobs of punching clocks instead of punching steers. I worked by day, but I played by night, and I chased everything that ran. I thought life was good, and it was mine. I was a maverick without a brand. But son, that wild life took my youth away. Sixty summers turned to fall. The grit that once was mine is gone, my saddle sores and all. And you know, I never found my calling, all those things I chased and lost. I never found true joy in life, and now I pay the tallied cost. I find mostly I'm reflecting on days from in my past. Oh, I wish I would have stayed a cowboy, because all that glitter passed. I've learned life's no rehearsal. What we do is in the play. It's there plain and bold for all to see whether we'll stand or fade away. You see, son, we're put here with a job to do, a part in a special plan. But I chose my way and spent my life, I thought, without a brand. I chased every joy that crossed my path while those branding fires burned high. I even chased the glowing embers they streaked up toward the sky. But then winter came and I was still chasing that prize I had to win. The fires burned down and I lost out on a life that could have been. When the dust and smoke had finally settled, I'd been ruined by my own hand. My life was wasted, cold and empty, and scorched with the devil's brand. Now I thought I'd stayed an unmarked maverick, a fact I'd proudly cheered. But somehow, when I wasn't looking, the wrong mark on me got seared. My pa tried hard to warn me that I'd baited and set my own snare. He said, son, you'll be caught in your own trap, and I don't think you even care. There's a demon got you marks on. He's trying hard to break your neck. Your road is wrong. You're asleep at the wheel and racing for a wreck. A thousand lessons were there to learn, but I thought I knew what's best. Now I've squandered every chance I had, and I've failed at life's last test. Well, you can bet my eyes were getting misty and my throat was swelling tight as we just sat there in the gutter in the glow of that old street light. But then I said, you know, old man, you say you failed and been seared with Satan's brand, but you sure marked me good tonight because I can see now where I stand. I played the fool in choosing this field of wild oats to roam. You know, I don't think I need these neon lights. Reckon I'll be going home. 
Then his lips began to quiver and a, a tear marked a trail down his cheek. His old face paled and he choked up so he could barely speak. He said, You mean you've reaped good from my wasted life as tears were clouding his eyes? Then he reached up, trembling, and shook my hand as I stood to say goodbye. But his sad old eyes took on a sparkle when I said I'd come back sometime. He looked once more at my old cowboy hat and said, I sure wish I still had mine. I turned and walked a step or two, still pondering how much I owed. Our old cowboy hats had been our lives, our link to the cowboy coat. A coat of the West that stood for something, for right and standing tall. A coat of chivalry and honor and reaching out when others fall. So I look back at that shell of a man leaning hard on his final gate. You know, I said, it won't be easy, but it's sure enough not too late. Then I placed my hat in his trembling hand and said, Partner, it'll be a rocky road, but take my hat and start again. Branded right with the cowboy coat. Branded by Joe Harrington on the apple seed. I'm Sam Payne. What a pleasure to have been with you today. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, and I can't wait to be with you again on the apple seed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.